Chapter Four, Part Three of the Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty: Its Cause and Consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty by Sir John Barrow Chapter 4, Part 3 The Open Boat Navigation On another occasion, when a stew of oysters was distributed among the people, Lieutenant Bly observes, in the manuscript journal, in the distribution of it, the voraciousness of some and the moderation of others were very discernible. The master began to be dissatisfied the first, because it was not made into a larger quantity by the addition of water, and showed a turbulent disposition, until I laid my commands on him to be silent. Again, on his refusing bread to the men, because they were collecting oysters, he says, this occasioned some murmuring with the master and carpenter, the former of whom endeavoured to prove the propriety of such an expenditure, and was troublesomely ignorant, tending to create disorder among those, if any were weak enough to listen to him. If what Bly states with regard to the conduct of the master and the carpenter be true, it was such, on several occasions, as to provoke a man much less irritable than himself. He thus speaks of the latter, when in the ship and in the midst of the mutiny. The boatswain and carpenter were fully at liberty. The former was employed, on pain of death, to hoist the boats out, but the latter I saw acting the part of an idler, with an impudent and ill-looking countenance, which led me to believe he was one of the mutineers, until he was among the rest ordered to leave the ship, for it appeared to me to be a doubt with Christian at first, whether he should keep the carpenter or his mate, Norman, but knowing the former to be a troublesome fellow, he determined on the latter. The following paragraph also appears in his original journal, on the day of the mutiny, but is not alluded to in his printed narrative. The master's cabin was opposite to mine. He saw them, the mutineers, in my cabin, for our eyes met each other through his door-window, he had a pair of ship's pistols loaded, and ammunition in his cabin. A firm resolution might have made a good use of them. After he had sent twice or thrice to Christian to be allowed to come on deck, he was at last permitted, and his question then was, Will you let me remain in the ship? No. Have you any objection, Captain Bly? I whispered to him to knock him down. Martin is good. This is the man who gave the shaddock for this was just before Martin was removed from me. Christian, however, pulled me back and sent away the master, with orders to go again to his cabin, and I saw no more of him until he was put into the boat. He afterwards told me that he could find nobody to act with him, that by staying in the ship he hoped to have retaken her, and that, as to the pistols, he was so flurried and surprised that he did not recollect he had them. This master tells a very different story respecting the pistols in his evidence before the court-martial. Whatever, therefore, on the whole, may have been the conduct of Bligh towards his officers, that of some of the latter appears to have been on several occasions provoking enough, 
and well calculated to stir up the irascible temper of a man, active and zealous in the extreme, as Bly always was, in the execution of his duty. Some excuse may be found for hasty expressions uttered in a moment of irritation, when passion gets the better of reason, but no excuse can be found for one who deeply and unfeelingly, without provocation, and in cold blood, inflicts a wound on the heart of a widowed mother, already torn with anguish and tortured with suspense for a beloved son, whose life was in imminent jeopardy. Such a man was William Bly. This charge is not loosely asserted. It is founded on documentary evidence under his own hand. Since the death of the late Captain Hayward, some papers have been brought to light that throw a still more unfavourable stigma on the character of the two commanders, Bly and Edwards, than any censure that has hitherto appeared in print, though the conduct of neither of them has been spared whenever an occasion has presented itself for bringing their names before the public. Bly, it may be recollected, mentions young Hayward only as one of those left in the ship. He does not charge him with taking any active part in the mutiny. There is every reason, indeed, to believe that Bly did not, and indeed could not, see him on deck on that occasion. In point of fact, he never was within thirty feet of Captain Bly, and the booms were between them. About the end of March, 1790, two months subsequent to the death of a most beloved and lamented husband, Mrs. Hayward received the afflicting information, but by report only, of a mutiny having taken place on board the Bounty. In that ship Mrs. Hayward's son had been serving as a midshipman, who, when he left his home in August 1787, was under fifteen years of age, a boy deservedly admired and beloved by all who knew him, and, to his own family, almost an object of adoration, for his superior understanding and the amiable qualities of his disposition. In a state of mind little short of distraction, on hearing this fatal intelligence, which was at the same time aggravated by every circumstance of guilt that calumny or malice could invent with respect to this unfortunate youth, who was said to be one of the ringleaders, and to have gone armed into the captain's cabin. His mother addressed a letter to Captain Bly, dictated by a mother's tenderness, and strongly expressive of the misery she must necessarily feel on such an occasion. The following is Bly's reply. London, April 2nd, 1790. Madam, I received your letter this day, and feel for you very much, being perfectly sensible of the extreme distress you must suffer from the conduct of your son Peter. His baseness is beyond all description, but I hope you will endeavour to prevent the loss of him, heavy as the misfortune is, from afflicting you too severely. I imagine he is, with the rest of the mutineers, returned to Otaheite. I am, madam, signed, William Bly. Colonel Holwell, the uncle of young Hayward, had previously addressed Bly on the same melancholy subject, to whom he returned the following answer. 26th of March, 1790. Sir, I have just this instant received your letter. With much concern I inform you that your nephew, Peter Hayward, is among the mutineers. 
His ingratitude to me is of the blackest dye, for I was a father to him in every respect, and he never once had an angry word from me through the whole course of the voyage, as his conduct always gave me much pleasure and satisfaction. I very much regret that so much baseness formed the character of a young man I had real regard for, and it will give me much pleasure to hear that his friends can bear the loss of him without much concern. I am, sir, etc. Signed, William Bly. The only way of accounting for this ferocity of sentiment towards a youth, who had in point of fact no concern in the mutiny, is by a reference to certain points of evidence given by Hayward, Hallett, and Purcell on the court-martial, each point wholly unsupported. Those in the boat would no doubt, during their long passage, often discuss the conduct of their messmates left in the bounty, and the unsupported evidence given by these three was well calculated to create in Bly's mind a prejudice against young Haywood. Yet, if so, it affords but a poor excuse for harrowing up the feelings of near and dear relatives. As a contrast to these ungracious letters, it is a great relief to peruse the correspondence that took place on this melancholy occasion between this unfortunate young officer and his amiable but dreadfully afflicted family. The letters of his sister, Nessie Haywood, of which a few will be inserted in the course of this narrative, exhibit so lively and ardent an affection for her beloved brother are couched in so high a tone of feeling for his honour and confidence in his innocence, and are so nobly answered by the suffering youth, that no apology seems to be required for their introduction, more especially as their contents are strictly connected with the story of the ill-fated crew of the bounty. After a state of long suspense, this amiable and accomplished young lady thus addresses her brother. Isle of Man, 2nd of June, 1792. In a situation of mind only rendered supportable by the long and painful state of misery and suspense we have suffered on his account, how shall I address my dear, my fondly beloved brother? How describe the anguish we have felt at the idea of this long and painful separation, rendered still more distressing by the terrible circumstances attending it? Oh, my ever-dearest boy, when I look back to that dreadful moment which brought us the fatal intelligence that you had remained in the bounty after Mr. Bly had quitted her, and were looked upon by him as a mutineer, when I contrast that day of horror with my present hopes of again beholding you, such as my most sanguine wishes could expect, I know not which is the most predominant sensation. Pity, compassion, and terror for your sufferings, or joy and satisfaction at the prospect of their being near a termination, and of once more embracing the dearest object of our affections. I will not ask you, my beloved brother, whether you are innocent of the dreadful crime of mutiny. If the transactions of that day were, as Mr. Bly has represented them, such is my conviction of your worth and honour, that I will without hesitation stake my life on your innocence. If, on the contrary, you were concerned in such a conspiracy against your commander, I shall be as firmly persuaded his conduct was the occasion of it. But, alas, could any occasion justify so atrocious an attempt to destroy a number of our fellow-creatures? 
No, my ever-dearest brother, nothing but conviction from your own mouth can possibly persuade me that you would commit an action in the smallest degree inconsistent with honour and duty, and the circumstance of your having swam off to the Pandora on her arrival at Otaheite, which filled us with joy to which no words can do justice, is sufficient to convince all who know you that you certainly stayed behind either by force or from views of preservation. How strange does it seem to me that I am now engaged in the delightful task of writing to you. Alas, my beloved brother, two years ago I never expected again to enjoy such a felicity, and even yet I am in the most painful uncertainty whether you are alive. Gracious God, grant that we may be at length blessed by your return. But alas! The Pandora's people have been long expected, and are not even yet arrived. Should any accident have happened after all the miseries you have already suffered, the poor gleam of hope with which we have been lately indulged will render our situation ten thousand times more insupportable than if time had inured us to your loss. I send this to the care of Mr. Hayward of Hackney, father to the young gentleman you so often mention in your letters while you were on board the bounty, and who went out as third lieutenant of the Pandora, a circumstance which gave us infinite satisfaction, as you would, on entering the Pandora, meet your old friend. On discovering old Mr. Hayward's residence, I wrote to him, as I hoped he could give me some information respecting the time of your arrival, and in return he sent me a most friendly letter, and has promised this shall be given to you when you reach England, as I well know how great must be your anxiety to hear of us, and how much satisfaction it will give you to have a letter immediately on your return. Let me conjure you, my dearest Peter, to write to us the very first moment. Do not lose a post. Tis of no consequence how short your letter may be, if it only informs us you are well. I need not tell you that you are the first and dearest object of our affections. Think then, my adored boy, of the anxiety we must feel on your account. For my own part I can know no real joy or happiness independent of you, and if any misfortune should now deprive us of you, my hopes of felicity are fled for ever. We are at present making all possible interest with every friend and connection we have, to ensure you a sufficient support and protection at your approaching trial, for a trial you must unavoidably undergo, in order to convince the world of that innocence which those who know you will not for a moment doubt. But alas, while circumstances are against you, the generality of mankind will judge severely. Bly's representations to the Admiralty are, I am told, very unfavourable, and hitherto the tide of public opinion has been greatly in his favour. My mamma is at present well, considering the distress she has suffered since you left us. For, my dearest brother, we have experienced a complicated scene of misery from a variety of causes, which, however, when compared with the sorrow we felt on your account, was trifling and insignificant. That misfortune made all others light, and to see you once more returned and safely restored to us will be the summit of all earthly happiness. Farewell, my most beloved brother. God grant this may soon be put into your hands. 
Perhaps at this moment you are arrived in England, and I may soon have the dear delight of again beholding you. My mamma, brothers and sisters, join with me in every sentiment of love and tenderness. Write to us immediately, my ever-loved Peter, and may the Almighty preserve you until you bless with your presence your fondly affectionate family, and particularly your unalterably faithful friend and sister, Nessie Haywood. The gleam of joy which this unhappy family derived from the circumstance which had been related to them of young Haywood's swimming off to the Pandora was dissipated by a letter from himself to his mother soon after his arrival in England in which he says the question my dear mother in one of your letters concerning my swimming off to the Pandora is one falsity among the too many in which I have often thought of undeceiving you, and as frequently forgot. The story was this. On the morning she arrived, accompanied by two of my friends, natives, I was going up the mountains, and having got about a hundred yards from my own house, another of my friends, for I was a universal favourite among those Indians, and perfectly conversant in their language, came running after me, and informed me there was a ship coming, I immediately ascended a rising ground, and saw, with indescribable joy, a ship laying to off Hapiano. It was just after daylight, and thinking Coleman might not be awake, and therefore ignorant of this pleasing news, I sent one of my servants to inform him of it, upon which he immediately went off in a single canoe. There was a fresh breeze, and the ship working into the bay. He no sooner got alongside than the rippling capsized the canoe, and he, being obliged to let go the tow-rope to get her righted, went astern, and was picked up the next tack, and taken on board the Pandora, he being the first person. I, along with my messmate Stuart, was then standing upon the beach with a double canoe, manned with twelve paddles, ready for launching, and just as she made her last tack into her berth, for we did not think it requisite to go off sooner, we put off and got alongside just as they streamed the boy, and being dressed in the country manner, tanned as brown as themselves, and I tattooed like them in the most curious manner, I do not in the least wonder at their taking us for natives. I was tattooed not to gratify my own desire, but theirs, for it was my constant endeavour to acquiesce in any little custom which I thought would be agreeable to them, though painful in the process, provided I gained by it their friendship and esteem, which you may suppose is no inconsiderable object in an island where the natives are so numerous. The more a man or woman there is tattooed, the more they are respected, and a person having none of these marks is looked upon as bearing an unworthy badge of disgrace, and considered as a mere outcast of society. Among the many anxious friends and family connections of the Haywards was Commodore Paisley, to whom this affectionate young lady addressed herself on the melancholy occasion, and the following is the reply she received from this officer. Sheerness, June the 8th, 1792. Would to God, my dearest Nessie, that I could rejoice with you on the early prospect of your brother's arrival in England. One division of the Pandora's people has arrived, and now on board the Vengeance, my ship, Captain Edwards, with the remainder, and all the prisoners late of the bounty, in number ten, 
for having been drowned on the loss of that ship, are daily expected. They have been most rigorously and closely confined since taken, and will continue so, no doubt, till Bly's arrival. You have no chance of seeing him, for no bail can be offered. Your intelligence of his swimming off on the Pandora's arrival is not founded. A man of the name of Coleman swam off ere she anchored, your brother and Mr. Stewart the next day. This last youth, when the Pandora was lost, refused to allow his irons to be taken off to save his life. I cannot conceal it from you, my dearest Nessie, neither is it proper I should. Your brother appears, by all accounts, to be the greatest culprit of all, Christian alone excepted. Every exertion you may rest assured I shall use to save his life, but on trial I have no hope of his not being condemned. Three of the ten who are expected are mentioned in Bly's narrative, as men detained against their inclination. Would to God your brother had been one of that number! I will not distress you more by enlarging on this subject. As intelligence arises on their arrival, you shall be made acquainted. Adieu, my dearest Nessie! Present my affectionate remembrances to your mother and sisters, and believe me always, with the warmest affection, your uncle, Thomas Paisley. How unlike is this from the letter of Bly! while it frankly apprises this amiable lady of the real truth of the case, without disguise, as it was then understood to be from Mr. Bly's representations, it assures her of his best exertions to save her brother's life. Every reader of sensibility will sympathise in the feeling displayed in her reply. Isle of Man, 22nd of June, 1792 Harassed by the most torturing suspense, and miserably wretched as I have been, my dearest uncle, since the receipt of your last, conceive, if it is possible, the heartfelt joy and satisfaction we experienced yesterday morning, when, on the arrival of the packet, the dear delightful letter from our beloved Peter, a copy of which I send you enclosed, was brought to us. Surely, my excellent friend, you will agree with me in thinking there could not be a stronger proof of his innocence and worth, and that it must prejudice every person who reads it most powerfully in his favour. Such a letter, in less distressful circumstances than those in which he writes, would, I am persuaded, reflect honour on the pen of a person much older than my poor brother. But when we consider his extreme youth, only sixteen at the time of the mutiny, and now but nineteen. His fortitude, patience, and manly resignation under the pressure of sufferings and misfortunes almost unheard of, and scarcely to be supported at any age, without the assistance of that which seems to be my dear brother's greatest comfort, a quiet conscience, and a thorough conviction of his own innocence, when I add, at the same time, with real pleasure and satisfaction, that his relation corresponds in many particulars with the accounts we have hitherto heard of the fatal mutiny, and when I also add, with inconceivable pride and delight, that my beloved Peter never was known to breathe a syllable inconsistent with truth and honour, when these circumstances, my dear uncle, are all united, what man on earth can doubt of the innocence which could dictate such a letter? In short, let it speak for him. 
the perusal of his artless and pathetic story will i am persuaded be a stronger recommendation in his favour than anything i can urge i need not tire your patience my ever-loved uncle by dwelling longer on this subject the dearest and most interesting on earth to my heart let me conjure you only my kind friend to read it and consider the innocence and defenceless situation of its unfortunate author which calls for and i am sure deserves all the pity and assistance his friends can afford him and which i am sure also the goodness and benevolence of your heart will prompt you to exert in his behalf it is perfectly unnecessary for me to add after the anxiety i feel and cannot but express that no benefit conferred upon myself will be acknowledged with half the gratitude i must ever feel for the smallest instance of kindness shown to my beloved peter farewell my dearest uncle with the firmest reliance on your kind and generous promises i am ever with the truest gratitude and sincerity your most affectionate niece, Nessie Hayward. End of chapter 4, part 3